the culture of the team is what determines whether an innovation team will, will succeed or not. The culture of the team has to be humility, which is what you're describing, right? The culture of the team has to be that we try stuff, but we're not arrogant to think that just because it came from us it's going to be successful. We kind of in innovation, you have to build and test and build and test all the time, and keep taking punches to the gut and falling to the ground and, and just coming back up. It's just that's just the nature of the of the work. So we need teams that have a culture of of sort of that humble inquiry. That's the word. Yeah. So this humble inquiry, this kind of humble in, 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 intellect, and you can build that in, in, into the culture. And then maybe you start looking for people that are fit. For, the, for that culture, even if they may be different in terms of their personality spectrum. Right? This episode of Search with Purpose wouldn't be possible without my day job at Exige International. Exige is an executive search firm providing talent within the Western European market for a whole range of financial services organizations. We, as a group of executives at Exige, believe that recruitment can be done differently. It can be done in a way which serves the needs of both our clients and our candidates, and also the world in which we live. We've committed to not only finding the very best talent available in the world, but also to giving 10% of our search revenue to forest protection charities to ensure that the future generations have these treasures intact and can enjoy them just as we have. So if you'd like to find out more about our work here at Exige, then please do check out our website at exigeinternational.com. That's E-X-I-G-E international.com. Or of course, you can find me on LinkedIn and I'd be very happy to have a conversation. This episode with Tunde Vicky is one I've been looking forward to. He comes highly recommended um, for anyone interested in the subject of innovation. As a partner at Strategizer, he runs many innovation and creativity-based workshops inside organizations. And um, that thinking that he's done on the subject, I found to be very refreshing and illuminating. And I suppose in some ways, a confirmation of many of the thoughts that I had around themes like humility, trust, resilience, and failure in that process. I learned a lot about the role of leaders and how leaders facilitate these innovation workshops and what we should be thinking about um, and how we can maybe impact both positively and negative those processes. He also has a book out called Pirates in the Navy. The book is written for those who are passionate innovators, but they're working inside large organizations and they want to create innovation ecosystems and bring that to life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It takes a little bit of time for us to get warmed up, but once we're there, uh, we really can dive into some very interesting and helpful and informative topics. So without further ado, I give you Tunde Vicky. Enjoy. Welcome. Today's episode, I'm with Tundoi Vicky. Um, it's a great pleasure to be speaking with you today. Um, Tundoi, you, you've had a really 
interesting journey to innovation and you know frankly i'm sort of interested to know but you've been in academia you've written a few books you're working in sector you're you're writing about innovation uh with forbes you're living eating breathing innovation um i wonder how and why you came to this so tell us a bit about your story and why why innovation is where you've decided to spend your life yeah it's um you know what they say, right? It's better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of people are often asking how you make career choices. And it's really just stumbling into opportunities every now and again. So I started my life intending to be a career academic. I wanted to go to law school. I didn't get the grades. So I ended up doing studying psychology at university. I ended up doing a PhD in psychology and being a psychology professor for 12 years, teaching psychology at, at university. And um, it was during that time that I got a fellowship to be a research fellow at Stanford University in Palo Alto. And that was the life-changing moment. That was the moment when getting to Palo Alto, seeing what's happening there with technology, startups, innovation. And I just sort of piqued my interest and I ended up spending more time in startup incubators than I did in the School of Psychology. Hmm. But, so, so coming back from there, I don't think I ever read another like, psychology book after that. I think I just read like business books, innovation books. And then I, so from there, I decided that I was going to do an MBA and sort of slowly make the transition into business with innovation and creativity as the, as the topic. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I find that innovation is a topic that I'm greatly interested in myself, um, professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. And it, it is inherently quite an elusive state, you know, how to be creative, how to make something happen. And you had spoken about this actually on um and on, on a piece i'd listened to you about linear versus non-linear development mm-hmm. so I, I sort of like to sort of just segue there for a moment talking about the process of creativity and you know is it something that you can just you know lay a linear process down on or is it going to be something that's inherently messy and is that okay so you know, let's talk to us a bit about the sort of the creative process and linear versus yeah. non-linear so yeah so that's interesting right um so a linear process is when you know exactly what's going to happen. You put $2 in, you get $3 on the other side. One plus one equals two, right? Two plus two equals four. So you can kind of, you know exactly what's going to happen. With creativity, the outputs are unpredictable. The quality of the output is unpredictable. Whether the output is going to have impact is unpredictable. So what you have to do with creative outputs is the philosophy that's been known to work is that you produce more than what you need. So, so the creative process is about if you're recording an album, you record 55 songs and then you use 12. Hmm. That's like that, that. That's the creative process. So in in um, in a really wonderful book by Adam Grant called Originals. Actually, let me before I get to the Adam Grant thing, I just want to say something that's sort of bothering me and it's sort of spinning in my head. Because a process is inherently messy, doesn't mean that there are no best practices and management tools you can use to drive it. Hmm. Hmm. It's not a black box. So creativity. So we know the things that drive creativity from a personality standpoint. We know things that drive creativity from a team composition standpoint. We know things that drive creativity from a from from a, from, a, from a just a general practice standpoint. So we know that people that are more open to new experiences, for example, are more creative than people that are not, just in terms of personality types. We know that people that have traveled and have been exposed to multiple cultures are are more creative than people that are not. 
I even published a paper where I showed when I was doing my psychology research that mixed race people are more creative than single race people. <laughs> and so it's sort of, uh, it's the more, and the, and the, and the, the, the process that that happens is something that we call integrative complexity, the ability to take two things that seem to be in opposition to each other and make them work together. That's what, that's where most breakthroughs happen, right? And so you can create teams that are multicultural, cross, cross-functional, right? And create a culture of help seeking and help giving to sort of drive that messy process, right? So, so that's the one part. And then as you're doing that, we know that the management practice is not to try and pick the winning idea on day one, kind of like somebody putting you in studio and going, write me a hit song. <laughs> like that's not how it works, right? The process to get to a hit song is you write 20 bad ones. And in between there, somewhere in that mess, there is the one gem. And really great examples from the book by Adam Grant. Now to spin back to that one, the, the book by Adam Grant called Originals. It's like Shakespeare probably wrote 150 plays. We only know 10. You know, Beethoven wrote 500 pieces. We probably only know 12. And so the creative process is is you 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 mass produce, and then you and then you choose the winning ideas. After that, they percolate. They don't. You can't deliberately design them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, there's a few strings here I'm I'm interested in and um to to follow. And it was good. One of the, the points I come to you a bit later on and about the the sort of the inherent types of personalities that we seek for in 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 creativity and are there a certain set of personalities that are at heart more creative um and and then but also i'm interested in the, the point you talked about with you know sort of people of mixed race being you know maybe more innovative or or being able to be more creative so i'm, I'm interested in why that is what was the fight why did that come from um yeah so i mean it's not really that right so it's got nothing to do with being mixed race or not hmm. it's got to do with it's got to do, yeah, because I don't want people to walk away going, I'm mixed race, I'm more, <laughs> let's make more mixed race people to make a better world. <laughs> That's not what I want. That's not the takeaway from here, right? The takeaway is that the more things you're exposed to and your ability to integrate and make sense of those things, the more you are able to 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 to, to become more creative. So a really great group of researchers, I think his name is William Maddox, he's based out of the, out of the US. He did work on just like, People that are well traveled, or people that are well actually, people that are well traveled are not as creative as people that have lived within the culture. So people that have actually lived in the culture, lived in a country, they're much more creative than people that have just traveled to that country on a tourist sort of. Mm. But the more you've embedded a culture, lived in it, seen the contradictions between that culture and your culture, it can, those people are, are much more likely to to be you know you know to be creative. Which, which then expands the teams, right? The more diverse the team is in terms of perspectives. So, so, so it, can, it can literally be anything. Like you can literally be, I used to be a carpenter and now I'm an accountant. Or I used to be a, a, a radio DJ, but I've also got this interest in motor racing. Like the more expansive and sort of diverse the things that are in your mind, that are playing around in your mind, the more interesting the, 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 the things you generate. That's why like long ago, knowledge was ten, tended to be moved forward by polymaths rather than single single discipline folk, right? Most most of the great intellectuals usually had more than one interest. Yeah. Have, have you reflected on your own background that you you've you grew up in Zimbabwe, right? Mm-hmm. You lived in the UK, you've lived in the US, mm-hmm. you've worked all over the world. So I was sort of thinking that 
is is that do you think that's in some way that also will kind of spurge your own interest in innovation and wondering sort of if in all of all of that have you seen anything that actually in a culture is a standout reason or or identifier for innovation and what what it is is there a certain value that you've seen across all of those cultures that you've worked in yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, I also speak two languages that are an expression of two different cultures, but I don't know. I can't really speak to that, right, to myself because I can't see it in myself. It's kind of hard to, to sort of see yourself, right? It's other people that would have to see see it in me. But what you do realize is that, like, the more things you're exposed to, the more expansive your mind is, mm. and then the more the, the more things you have to pull at. So, like, one of the processes, for example, that I think IDEO uses when they're trying to do, when they're trying to get teams to be more I- I- innovative is to say, okay, listen, we're trying to solve this problem. Pick a random problem. We're trying to solve the problem of how to make this mouse much more usable. So, what we're going to do is we're not going to just focus on the mouse. Bring anything from your life that you find interesting. And then people bring, like, their favorite Nike shoes. They show you their favorite website. They bring a, mag- a magazine article. that they read. They just bring all that stuff into the ideation workshop. Hmm. Things that are all often tangible, and they just share, right? And then, and then, it's, and then they try and make the connections within. Then they're like, "Oh, I wonder what the principle for designing that could work with." So it's it's really just about pulling at, at various things, and and that's a process for sparking creativity. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting actually, because I'm 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 currently deep in a book called The Artist's Way um, by a lady called Julia Cameron. I mean, some people may know this book. I don't know if you're sure. She works specifically with people trying to become more creative or with artists right. trying to unblock themselves. And, right. You know, she has this premise early on in the book that everybody can be creative. There is yeah. no specific type of person who is going to be more creative than somebody else. Yes. Say. Um, yeah. There is an artist that sort of lives in all of us. And, you know, she brings a very similar method, actually. She has this idea of kind of morning journal, morning pages, where you sort of just write and get all of your, the, the sort of the the chatter that's in your mind out onto the page. And then there's another part where she asks you to go on a date with yourself, the artist date, which is about, I think, to something to what you said there about just getting creative, just, just pulling on different strings and finding connectivity between random situations and the problems that you're trying to create for yourself. Um, but what I what I see in that is that she's also applying a system to inherently a creative function. It's our this idea of like the control system and the creative system, you know, and that the, the ultimate productivity in innovation happens somewhere in between, right? Um, and so I I'm glad to hear that you know the, there is a science that you can apply, but there is also you know an inherently you know, free and artistic component that we have to be able to express. And I wonder, you know, I, when I work with organizations, I'm I'm a great believer in in teams succeeding based on trust, right? And I wonder what you think about the qualities or the environments that you need to create in big organizations to create the right environments for them to be innovative. What are your what are your thoughts on either trust as a quality or any of the kind of conditions that need to be created inside big companies to innovate? Yeah, so <laughs> so trust is an interesting one, right? Because there's a couple of things in that, right? So if you're if we're working in a team together, I trust that you are an authentic, you're authentically interested in things that work. If 
um, I trust that you, if I bring something that's kind of crazy, we'll, we, we will get a chance to test it out as a team. And, and if it fails, it doesn't matter. Which is different from the expectation is that you're going to deliver Q4 numbers come rain or shine. Hmm. Great. So an execution engine just will not create the right psychological, psychologically safe space for innovation. Innovation is literally, we're going to make a mess. And then after we've made the mess, we're going to systematically test it to see which of those threads we've pulled on have value. And so, so you have to trust two things. The first thing is you have to trust that we can make a mess. And then you have to trust that we'll, we'll clean up the mess through a process of iteration and testing. If while you're cleaning up the mess, you're already trying to select, you will start to constrain the process. And so what companies need is management systems or management processes or management styles or working environments that facilitate mess making and iterative development and testing. So we say design like you're right and test like you're wrong. Those are the two principles. Design like you're right and then test like you're wrong. That's the best way to extract innovations out of teams. If you don't create that environment for teams, the trust will go away because when I'm making a mess and you're critiquing everything that I'm doing, you're making me start to refine my ideas too soon. Mm. And by making me refine my ideas too soon, I'm less likely to find that breakthrough thing that's going to create value. Right. So as managers, you you have to sort of trust your teams to make the mess. Now, as an innovation team, you build trust in your manager to the extent that after you've made a mess, you're also disciplined about then pulling on the threads that create value and testing your ideas, and making sure you find something solid. So it's a kind of a two-way street of how you build trust with innovation. Right. It's, that's the way to work it out, I think. Yeah, trust is 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 a very um can be a very fragile state but once it's embedded i i can i see it in the, the teams that i work with and when it when teams are failing that really is because that trust is, has broken down fundamentally yeah and i i um i i wonder you, you know talking about failure um and what your thoughts are on failure in in sort of the in the context of innovation and you know do you think that you know you talk about your book as well the pirates in the navy that you talk about these um privateers right describe privateers and they are that mix between um the the sort of the pirate <laughs> and the, the corporate animal somebody who can sit in between that right and so yeah. i, I want to link that sort of the idea of like failure because you know if you're going to be a privateer or you're going to be a pirate or you're going to be anything inside an organization that has to do with innovation you are going to be failing at some point right you're going to be failing probably pretty spectacularly Mm-hmm. more than you are going to be succeeding and so we talked about trust yeah you can go ahead and make a mess trust then you can clean it up but is it also trust then around failure about failure is going to be that yes you can fail i can fail spectacularly but you i'm going to trust you that you're going to support me when i do and yeah. we're going to be able to get enough failure to get to success so yeah what are your thoughts on failure and you know, in the context of big organizations yeah i mean so so, so there's so there's two things right um you you can't fail in a manner that it damages the main business. So, so, so that's the first building block of, of, of that trust, which is innovators are in a sandbox where their blast radius is contained. Hmm. 
so that they're not failing in a way that puts the organization at, at risk. That's fundamentally critical. The second thing is when we're making a mess, we're making small bets. We're not making big bets, which means that which, which means that we're happy to accept failure because failure is cheap and failure is fast. And so we, we, we make small bets, we make multiple small bets, and then we only double down our investment on those things that are showing promise. And so, again, that's another way of limiting the blast radius of failure. And so the more and more you can limit the blast radius of failure, the more and more you can build trust. Because then leaders are like, yeah, it's fine. Like, I mean, if I give you like $50,000 and it doesn't work out, okay. But if I give you $3 million, now it's my reputation and yours on the line. <laughs> so it better work. So the question is just, just like they do in venture capital, right? If you're just starting out, Nobody's going to give you like $20 million to work on a project. They'll give you seed funding, 15 grand. Go prove some things. And as you come back with evidence that you're, you're making progress, we'll give you more. Hmm. And that's really the management process for driving in, in, in innovation, which is different from how we drive the core business. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. And so one of my, this seems like a nice one. I'm going to follow this this track for a while now on the, on the sort of the qualities of people in these teams as well. You know, if I've got if we've got somebody listening to this who you know say is a an accountant and you know they're they're in a, maybe an audit function and they're like you know I, I really want to create something I really want to start getting innovative, but I just don't think I'm that type of person. Um, or we may be listening to somebody in a sales role who may think of themselves as being a little bit more you know sort of you know big big sky thinking, big blue sky thinking. Um, do you think there are, I mean, I, I personally think of these individuals, so it, you've got two very people on different sides, thinkers and feelers, right? Um, you know, and then I, I think of a quality in the people I'm always looking for, which is humility. Humility, I think, is one of these qualities I've seen. It's a fundamental pillar that I look for in anyone I'm hiring. Mm -hmm. I believe that, that if you find somebody with high levels of humility, it's a great indicator of basically how how they'll go on to work in organizations, how creative also they will be. And so I, I wonder what you think about humility specifically also as a quality, no matter where you are on the psychometric spectrum, as being important or not to innovation. Yeah. So I mean, cause so when it comes to describing like human beings as, as how good they are at, at, at innovation, I get stuck because it's the kind of, I get stuck because it's teams that innovate, not people. So the idea that innovation is a is like tennis, like a solo sport, <laughs> right? That, that, that so when I get that question, that's the first thing I push back on, which is okay. Right, individuals don't innovate, teams don't innovate. There's never like like when people say Thomas Edison, when the people say Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, Thomas Edison is a name for fifteen other people. Yeah. <laughs> That were there running the experiments, doing the tests, saying, "Hey, try this one, or let's try this." It was a it was a lab. So, 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 so that's the first piece. Which means that in that mix, what you need are thinkers and feelers. What you need are the people that go, "Okay, enough of the creative stuff. Let's do something." <laughs> and people that say, "No, no, no, don't keep pushing us. Allow us to do." This. You need that mix of different personality types. And different skill sets and different pieces of knowledge and different threads pulling together. You need it's a it's a it's a philosophy that I call sometimes when we talk about team diversity, we talk about professional diversity, but we don't talk about psychological diversity. Mm. Right. So you need that 
psychological diversity in the in the in the in the in in the team. Now, in the culture of the team, the culture of the team is what determines whether an innovation team will, will succeed or not. The culture of the team has to be humility, which is what you're describing, right? The culture of the team has to be that we try stuff, but we're not arrogant to think that just because it came from us is going to be successful. We kind of in innovation, you have to build and test and build and test all the time, and keep taking punches to the gut and falling to the ground and, and just coming back up. It's just that's just the nature of the of the work. So we need teams that have a culture of of sort of that humble inquiry. That's the word. Yeah. So this humble inquiry, this kind of humble in, in, in intellectual, and you can build that in, in, into the culture. And then maybe you start looking for people that are fit. For, the, for that culture, even if they may be different in terms of their personality spectrums, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel that actually. I think it was a word coming up a lot here, which is diversity and diversity of thinking, you know, professional diversity. And um, it's been a thought of mine for a while that um, that we all, we you know, when I'm when I'm advising that we you know someone searches out for you know a co-founder in a startup or they're looking for you know, someone to do to, you know build into their leadership team that I'm advising that we we identify for cognitive diversity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just something beautiful in the fact that you have people who who come at problems from a different angle yeah um, be that if you're male or female black, mm-hmm. white asian anywhere in between if yeah. you are gay straight if you come from a low income family originally if you come from a rich family it's just new way to look at the world right um which i think that and 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 that's a difficult thing to build into sometimes into organizations and and i i wonder actually when you create innovation teams if that's something that you need to be very particular about is that something you should be when you're creating those teams and inside organizations that you should be going okay we need somebody who's on that psychometric side that side or that side or or do you just do it haphazardly? I mean, what is your idea on that? Because you know you do this so much with companies helping them create these innovation units. So this diversity of thinking is that a deliberate process when you come to creating innovation teams? Yeah. So I found that organizations focus a lot on demographic diversity, and then it becomes the, the place where they hide the fact that they're all alike. <laughs> I was watching a program on. The, it's a very great BBC program on the role of the upper classes in the UK in terms of how they drive the entertainment media business. I think, and what you find is there's a lot of the, the, there's a lot of racial diversity, for example, on the on the on the BBC. But the guy went to private school, so he's not anything like any of the other people that are from the. So, so, so do you see what I'm saying? So for us, so for me, when I'm working with teams, like for example, I was working with a, with, a, with a team in a large manufacturing company, and we were in Dubai. And we did the, their psychological profiles, and it was a diverse group. It was a mixture of males, females, black, white, Asian. You know, Dubai, the way Dubai is, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like a you know, melting pot. And but when we looked at their profiles, they were all like because an engineering firm, they were all everyone like you know thinking and no feeling. So it didn't matter that they all came from different cultures. That they were all like this, the style of thinking that they'd recruited for was the same. But they would be proud that they're diverse. Mm-hmm. And so when, when it comes to the kind of work we're doing right now, you know, I say let's focus, focus less on the, on almost like the demographic diversity of a group and think about really the cognitive diversity, which is what you're talking about, which is 
different styles of thinking, different ways of approaching a problem, different. And I think you're much more likely to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one though, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I think that's where, again, I can imagine with these innovation teams, it's difficult because you need to sort of somehow select, you know, from across an organization mm-hmm. um, and pull them in and recognizing that you need this sort of tension in states, actually. Yeah. Innovation. Um, I would like to talk about tension actually in the creative yeah. process because it's maybe something that doesn't get talked about enough actually that inherently when you kind of get you think of an innovation day it's like hey let's all get together let's hold hands let's um you know let's make best friends and let's do that but innovation which is kind of can be you know also described as creation can be very difficult and very tense right so when you're when you're doing, when you are doing innovation, what do you think about that? When you see that that tension, do you think that's a good yeah. thing, a bad thing? Talk to me about that. No, absolutely. So, so there's two principles that are work, and and Jeff Bezos is really great at really explaining these two principles. The one principle is you need a psychological, a psychologically safe space to disagree violently on everything, hmm. and people understand that it's not personal. We're just working here. We're trying to figure out a goal, and then you need what we call it's the principle of disagree, then commit. When the team then chooses a direction, you don't then want to be the jerk that's, that says, because they didn't choose my direction, I'm not going to be a saboteur and not join in to make sure that the direction that's chosen actually succeeds. And so this principle of disagree, then commit, that's what creates trust, which is I know that we're disagreeing, but I know that once we pick a direction, even though it wasn't the direction you suggested, you're all in. Great. And that's what really builds this sort of that's, that, that's Then it becomes, and then, then it's okay. Like we can argue for two hours. And we say, okay, what are we going to start with? Okay, let, well, let's, I, you know, who's the project, who's the product manager for this? They make the final decision. Okay, I've heard everything. Let's go this way. And then everyone's like, okay, let's go. But with, with, with the view that that direction which we've chosen, it might not work out. And we've got all these other options that we've thought about. So, and, and, and we'll come back to those. Yeah. Violent disagreement. I think that's, um, within a safe space that's it's an interesting terminology i like that yeah i think that's i think coming back to the earlier point we made about trust uh, and humility um that's why those probably values are so incredibly important when we are ultimately getting into situations where we are going to be disagreeing where we are going to be killing babies effectively you know when when people are coming up with these precious ideas and at some point someone's got to go no that's a terrible idea now let's or let's cut part of that away and your bit that you just spent two weeks designing actually we can't deliver that yeah it's going to be some violence in that disagreement and that will be i suppose ultimately predicated um on the trust that you've developed before whether or not you can actually go ahead and yes the full team right but it's also the fairness of those decisions right which is how do we make decisions hmm. how, how was it decided that the thing i worked on for two weeks is not worth working on anymore was it because we put it in front of customers and customers didn't like it? Right? What is the fairness of the decision making? The fairness of the decision making is what creates trust. So you need people that are humble enough to say ideas are a dime a dozen. We'll put them in the mix, but there's a process for extracting what works that doesn't work, and that process is fair. Okay. This seems like yeah. a nice way to talk a bit about um, um, a bit about what the work that you do with strategizer and how that connects to agile and lean startup because um, mm-hmm. 
there may be some people listening to this who have lived under a rock somewhere and have no idea what strategy is. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, because, you know, if they can see you on camera, you've got those, they, it's, you know, synonymous with these amazing sort of um, rolled out paper with sort of boxes where you can design, you know, different. But maybe you could just tell us a bit about these systems that make it more um, fair, right? Apply the science to this creative mess that is um, innovation. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? So science might be too heavy a word. <laughs> <laughs> I like to go to like frameworks and tools. Uh, well, you can right? put whatever you like, right? You can put on a lab coat, like or you can just... I like it, like there might be some PhD physics major somewhere going, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we call it framework and tools. And so, 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 so the thing that makes strategize a really, really sort of world class, in my opinion, I've been working with them for 18 months now. I love strategizer, by the way. Uh, we're, we, we, we use it a lot ourselves. So yeah, big, yeah. Yeah, everybody's got to love it. If you get to try it, please do. Anybody, yeah. but please, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. So the thing that makes the world class is, is that, you know, Alex has figured out a way of designing visual tools that allow for collaboration. Mm. Right, and so if you have visual tools that allow for collaboration, it means that people can gather together. They can have a shared language, a shared definition of what a business model is, a shared definition of what a value proposition is, and then they can use those things to guide conversation. So that when they're engaged in the creative process, they mean the same thing. When they say who's what, what's a customer segment, it means the same thing, and it means something different from a value proposition. It means something different from a channel. It means something different from of a customer relationship and so 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 that way of like collaborating together is really great and then the second thing is that because the tools are visual and flexible they'll you can also like design they've got, they've got this built-in flexibility that allows you to do multiple things with them that allows you to map out very 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 different ideas and, and, kind, of, and, and, and kind of stretch those out and then together with the lean startup movement or the lean startup approach if you if you wrap all those things together you can actually develop a, a, a designing and testing process so the fairness is when we're designing our business models, we design them. We say, this is the idea we want to work on. It looks very good. We get it really creative. We come up with various ideas. We, we stretch it as much as we can. And when we're done with that, we say, okay, we're done with design. We're now shifting to the testing phase. And in the testing phase, we ask ourselves one basic question, which is we've designed a really great idea here. But what are all the things that would have to be true in the real world for this idea to work? Hmm. Like, what would have to be true in the real world? Well, it would have to be true that customers have the need that we think they have. It would have to be true that customers are willing to pay $5.99 to subscribe. It would have to be true that we can create the product. It would have to be true that we can easily get our, our application hosted on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on, on Apple Store. Like, so you map out all the things that have to be true. And then you ask yourself a second question. Well, how much evidence do we have right now that those things are true? And then... That's the review process. Say, okay, we have this we have evidence, this one we don't, this we have evidence, this one we don't. Okay. Well for those things that we don't have evidence we don't have evidence for, let's start testing those things. And if the data comes back and tells us that the things that needed to be true for our idea to be successful are not true, we stop. Okay. So so if I'm right there, then sort of we, we effectively have sort of two distinct phases with this visual approach. It, it, we talked earlier about you know diversity, cognitive diversity, diversity of thinking. This yeah. this visual approach of the systems allows those who have different ways of thinking to to participate in the process of innovation on a mm -hmm. level playing field, right? Yeah, um, exactly. 
that that hadn't come to my mind before, but it makes a lot of sense because in my own team, I have thinkers and feelers, and I, you know, I, I'm I'm the talker. I like to kind of you know think big. You know, my colleagues say it's like trying to lasso clouds with me, and then I have those who are, um, I know, right? That's a great way to put it. And then um, and then we have those who are much more in the numbers, who who are the thinkers. You know, don't like to be hugged. Um, you know, there's those those people are now thinking about this system that visual approach that strategizer gives you is that common way a common language to think yeah. diversely in a common way i really yeah. like that and that's yeah. a, i think for people listening who haven't used it that'll be a great starting point and then you move into the testing phase which is i suppose ultimately about being fair right that's what mm-hmm. about as well it's yes that you can find the data and if then you figure that actually something's wrong or something's not right or that you just need to change something, then you can do it based on a fair approach, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Based on evidence, right? Based this evidence drives the decision making rather than the highest paid person's opinion. Or in your case, the owner's opinion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm aware of that that dynamic in, in the creative process for sure. And I'm I think it's something that needs to be vaccinated against very regularly, actually. Um because if you're I think that's where it comes back to humility. And I'm, I'm, you know, I think Ray Dalio talked about this, that, that there are some different personalities that you get and some are very comfortable articulating themselves verbally and others are much more reflective. Mm-hmm. And that is something I found certainly in, in a creative process I need to be mindful of is giving everybody a voice at the table, yeah. right? That's the idea of humility, um, of trust that people can stand forward. So when, when you're doing this, and you go and help companies and I do you do this are you sort of the the referee are you sort of the um the sort of you know omnipotent god that sort of you know lays down the rules and how to do it how, how do you facilitate this yeah so my philosophy of of consulting with companies is by the time i leave you, you should be able to do it yourself right it it shouldn't be that you keep phoning me and going, hey, we're doing another another design session. Come and facilitate. We're doing another design session. Come and facilitate, right? So that's why our our goal is to proliferate the toolbox, and the toolbox has to be easy to use. It also has to be easy to learn to use. Mm. And so, yeah, my role is coach, right? I don't actually get to play the game, but the company gets to play the game, and. In fact, my role is tennis coach. You know, like tennis coaches are not allowed to coach during the game. Like they have to sit on the sideline. Like I'm like a tennis coach. I have to like coach before and then, and then I go on my way. And people only call me if they need something. Mm. And so that's and and that's the role we play as a strategizer. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. I I think that's um. What well, you said two words there, coach and game, and um. I'm interested to sort of follow that a little bit, if I may, because this idea of games, there's, there's a, a chap I'm going to be doing another interview called Luke Homan, um, based out in, I think he's a mutual colleague, a mutual friend of ours, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote about innovation games. Yeah. Right? And um, yeah. I can't think of a, you know, something like creativity. You read Julia, Julia Cameron's book. She talks a lot about playing, going out and having fun. Yeah. The word game. And there is something about, watching children play and be creative that is just so incredibly like humbling i could use that word again when i watch my children so deep in it and you've used that so i wonder what it is you think it is about play or games that are so synonymous with innovation have you given that any thought there's no fear of failure 
right? When you're playing games, when, when kids are playing, uh, except my son Jacob was really competitive. <laughs> they don't really care if they win or lose that much, right? They're, if they're if they're kind of doing, especially if they're doing random play rather than structured play, yeah. they're really just prodding the world to see what happens. And so that's how you do discovery. You sort of prod the world to see what happens. But And over time, we socialize that out of each other. We socialize the prodding of the world to see what happens. We say, no, listen, the world has already been prodded. We know what happens. <laughs> Just walk in this direction, right? And so we kind of people start to feel less secure to try and to sort of try new things. And so when you're trying to build an innovation culture, you kind of have to then create the space where you bring that back out of them, which is in this space is fine. <laughs> Prod the world, see what happens. Yeah, right? and we'll we've got a sandbox. We've designed it in in such a way, just kind of like what you do for your kids. Right, you're not gonna let your kids come play on the motorway. Right, <laughs> put them in a place where they can play safely, and that's the same thing we do with innovation kid teams. Not to say that your innovation teams are children. That's not the implication here, but that the process that they're using is a mess making process, and so we kind of need to con- to contain the, the the impact that it has on the organization. You know what? I think we could be more like children at work a bit more. Actually, I think this is an interesting one. Some about this idea of you know having a playing and being able to access the child mentality. Yeah, because I do think there is a, a misnomer between the idea that children are, you know, are some. It's a state of being which is in somehow inferior. But right. what I what I what I admire in my children is their utter absorption and concentration. Mm-hmm. This the idea and ability to enter a flow state. Yes, it's so incredible to watch. Any of those of you that have children that have children that you interact with, and you just watch them being so deep. And that I think actually is where we're trying to access this deep flow concentration state, which allows that creativity mm-hmm. to come forth. And then if you can capture them, like you're talking about, in these structured environments that help you then to sort of you know then go out and test them in the world and create evidence and keep it fair. Yeah. Um, so I just want to add one thing to that, which is the role of managers and leaders, right, is to decide when what works. So it's not so the thing that the thing that sometimes hurts innovators is we tend to make universal statements about about about, about the things that, that that we believe in. So there's a certain class, there's a certain class of problem. I don't know what you're talking about there? <laughs> <laughs> Have a problem where you can that, that you can solve using the, the children's mindset, if you want to call it that. The job of the ambidextrous leader, if you want to call them that, the leader that can move between different states, is to say, "This is a creative. This is a creativity problem. This is a this is an execution challenge. This is a design challenge. This is a test challenge. This is a." And then you start to pull on the toolbox to say, okay, listen, right now we're designing. Let's get our sticky notes together, get Sharpies, bring inspiration. There's the wall. Let's do it. That's our tool for design. Okay, we're, te- we're now prioritizing. We need a framework for that. So we get a two-by-two two important evidence, no evidence. And, then you and now we're designing experiments. So bring out your calculators, folks. <laughs> right? So now, now I don't want you to be a child. Like We're not joking. Right, I really don't want you to be a child. I really want to tell, don't want you to tell me what the minimum success criteria mm. for an experiment are. And then when we come back and we're analyzing data from that experiment, I want us to be serious to say, did the experiment work? Did we get the results we expected? And then we say, no, we didn't get the results we expected. So we're gonna have to redesign our product. Ah, cool. Let's get back to play. Yeah. Basically, what we've just learned. Let's bring back our child mindset. Let's play again and see, like, 
if we can create around this new learning. Bring out the sticky notes again. Okay, cool. Let's go back. Again. So you have to be able to dance between those two states, and you have to create a culture that that that, that if, if, even empowering your teams to know, to actually push back and go, no, you're applying the wrong tool right now. This is a problem that needs to be solved in this way. Mm. I think that's a beautiful. A, a really fantastic actual lesson there. So I'm when what works, right? Yeah. I suppose that's going back to the idea of the coach then, right? It's, it's knowing in which distinct phase of the game that you're in. Um, yes. I'm coaching football, under sevens football. My, oh, cool. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to like link this up between, you know, when you have your defensive phase and you have your attacking phase and you have yeah. you know, the transition yeah. phase in between and they're different mindsets for the team to be in. And, I can sort of see how that works in a game state actually as well. But I can actually see that's very difficult because you may get a leader who is, you know, someone who is definitely the the, the creative. Yes. And they're going to not want to be in the detail. And I think, again, I'm going to quote Ray Dalio's book again. He talks about you know, creating baseball cards for people in the organization. He says you want to give, you know, creative tasks to creative thinkers and the detail yeah. jobs to the detail people, right? And yeah. and, and that's... It sounds like that's where the the real artistry comes in here is being able to know which part of the game you're in. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Scrum, so, so the best metaphor for innovation is Scrum. Scrum comes from the NFL, hmm. where every play is, is, is scripted, right? So the quarterback, like every play is like in chunks. And at each point, you're making decisions. So if you, if you, you have to move 10 yards, that's the goal. If you fail to move 10 yards and you've got 15, you've gone back 15 yards, you get together, you scrum, and you go, we're back at 15. What do we do now? And then you go, all right, we need to do this. And then everybody goes and plays, and you come back and you analyze the results. And and that's where this concept of scrum and agile came from, which is we work, we see the results, we review, then we go back out again. We work, we see the results, we review, and then we go back out again, which is different from we set the roadmap in January. Mm-hmm. Now we're going until December. I don't want anyone to ask me about the roadmap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this would be an interesting people for people to go and watch the um the talk that you did on YouTube um about linear and nonlinear and that yeah. that actually a lot of the design phases seem to go in like, you know, you go into your, your design phase, you do your, your testing phase and you scaling. I, I don't know if I did that justice, but effectively yeah. what it is that so many organizations like these linear processes, but fact is that nothing is well teams can be in different positions on yeah. in their process right like at the yeah. moment i've got a new product which is mm. kind of we're piloting it but we need you know further maybe we need to do more work on iteration around the product design for example yeah. so you can see and you don't necessarily need to go out to more customer voice you may need to be doing more feasibility testing right for example so you're saying there what when what works is right. the yeah. job and exactly. be able to sit, figure out where you are so that's where yeah. you bring someone in like yourself and hopefully teach enough people to know then how to make these things work. And you know, that's tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's definitely mm-hmm. tricky. Thing mm-hmm. to do. Um, so, okay. Um, I mean, maybe sort of um, switching gears. We've covered quite a lot of stuff there around sort of the, the, the states of, um, you know, doing this and, and states of being in, in innovation and, and those sort of things. And I've, maybe people are also listening to this thinking, well, I'm in lockdown at the moment. How am I supposed to be like, you know, creative with COVID-19 raging and I can't even get together with people? So I wonder what your thoughts are on, you know, you're still going to innovate. No more time when you need to innovate when stuff is like it is right now, right? In the- yeah. So yeah. what are your thoughts on innovating in this sort of distributed way? Will that affect it? 
negatively or can it still work just the same? Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of distributed coaching for the last like couple of weeks. It's really difficult. Mm. Distributed work is really difficult. You have to over prepare, you have to over design, you have to over communicate, and you have to give space and time. It's not it's not the same dynamic as being together. But it doesn't mean that it it, it can't be done. We're not gonna just like wash our hands and walk away from the field. We do have to innovate. I think the harder thing is not the the remote thing. I think the harder thing for people to innovate is to innovate in a crisis. Hmm. That, that that that's really really hard. And and I find that organizations it's it's my theory at the moment, and I'm doing research on it, and I want to find out whether this is true. It's almost like by the time you have the heart attack, it's too late to start jogging. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like you, you're now in a crisis. You're now needing to nurse yourself first back to health before you can even start jogging. So my fear is that the companies that didn't do innovation, they didn't have the muscle already. They're finding it the hardest to pivot, iterate, respond to to the pressures that they're under right now. And you know, coming out of this out, out, out of this crisis, those leaders will be like, "Great, that was fun." Virtual working and all that. Now everybody get back to work. <laughs> we, have, we have a crisis to solve. Yeah. Right. And then they'll get back to cost cutting, efficiency, and no innovation at all. I'm, I'm glad you're thinking on this. And in my own experience of this, having um, created a product called Found, which is all about teaching leaders how to hire their dream team. And then, mm-hmm. and then you know, being at a launch phase with it, and then having COVID-19 slam down on the market where organizations are being, you know, cautious about hiring made me think you know have i got it exactly right yeah i'm at that stage in i'm already at the stage of like immediacy like i I mean that 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 fight moment where i've got to start looking after my organization i've got to actually figure out what's going in my family i've got to figure out a whole range of things which are immediacy related issues yeah Um, and, and, and i presume the brain kicks in in a different way it's more um animalistic to be dealing with what's right in front of you yeah, and, exactly. and I don't, I don't inherently believe that's a creative state. I think that's more like an execution state, isn't that's it? Execution state, yeah, exactly. Done, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what Scott Scott Anthony says this really well, which is innovate before you need to. Yeah. Because the need to innovate and the ability to innovate are inversely related. Like when you need to, and you're in a crisis. Yeah. I'm from Zimbabwe. We we have a saying which is you can't make your cows fat when you when you get to the market. Like <laughs> you need to have been feeding them before you take them to the market. You're gonna say like tomorrow we're gonna market feed them. Yeah. And <laughs> so, you know what though, I will say to this is very true because you know, I've got some of the the in the strategizer charts. We actually did a session, we did it over about three days, a couple months back, maybe longer, where we did about four or five different products, lots of sticky notes. We chose one and we rolled up the other ones and we put them back in the cupboard with a view that we will bring them out. And we've done just that, actually. Right. We've brought them out now and we're rethinking some of the product ideas that we had, which didn't seem suitable back then. And that, um, I'm very thankful for that process, actually, because like you're saying, actually, I think to put my team through this idea of I need to drop things right now and de- innovating would be very difficult. Right. Imagine you wanted to do those five canvases now. Yeah. Be very today was the day you said, okay, now we're in a crisis. We don't know what our clients are doing. All these things are going on. Can we can we can we just stop for for four hours and do a canvas? Like, are you crazy? <laughs> we're not doing that right now. I got like, I got this call. I got this email. I got this thing. I got the, the absolute. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. Well, um, 
I, I'd like to sort of kind of, I suppose, cycle back round here with, um, you know, may, maybe just sort of finishing up. So I, I, I would like to just mention the fact that you have written a book right now, right? So you have written, got a new book out. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's coming out promotion tomorrow okay yeah. fantastic tomorrow. Uh, so that's the uh, 14th of may yes yeah. yeah, so whenever you're listening yeah. this this book will be out 14th of may what's the name again pirates in the navy pirates in the navy fantastic um i will be mentioning this a bit i mean pirates in the navy um is all about exactly what we've been talking about is the idea that you're innovating inside large organizations right so exactly exactly Okay. Exactly. And and I would um I'll be putting a link to this in the show notes um to the book um and so also your work. Uh, yeah. I think it will be a, a recap of the idea that um these privateers versus pirates and you know how privateers are, are succeeding large inside yeah. large organizations. Yeah. I I think it's a very interesting t- topic and something that I'm working on a lot, building teams that are effectively yeah. privateers, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um very important topic right now. So please check that out, of course, as well. Um, look, today I'd like to say thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, thank you. If anybody's interested in finding you, how do they find you on the interweb? <laughs> on the inter on the interweb, yeah. <laughs> uh, so tendaiviki.com or strategizer.com. Okay, that's, that's brilliant. And um, you're on LinkedIn as well, right? I'll... Yeah, yeah, I'm LinkedIn. All, yeah. all your favorite social networks. Well, I'd like to say thank you so much for your time today. It's been pleasure talking to you and exploring these things um i will hope that anybody uh, who's interested will check out your book and or reach out and but you've been an absolute pleasure thanks for your time and thank you So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.